came across a story that was particularly disheartening. It is uh, currently happening in China. I don't know if you realize, but there are several lockdowns that are happening again. And apparently they had a new strain that um, has gotten out. And there's this one viral video that's going around all over the place. And it is a city in, I believe it's Shanghai. And you know in, in that nation they have these incredibly tall apartment buildings that are just full of people. And probably 30, 40 of them. And it's a picture, it's a video of someone who is standing there at night and they're just panning the video camera around. And of course, it's at nighttime and it's really, really lit up. But you can hear the sounds of thousands of people that are screaming. And the person who's on the video is describing it and he's saying that they're screaming because under government orders they have been locked in their homes. They, ha- they can't come out. And they receive a daily ration of food, just a few very small pieces of food. And I even read uh, a few stories of people who were screaming for so long, for so many nights, that some of them had decided to take their own lives. I bring that up this morning because I really believe what I said earlier, that we're living in unique times. The things that we've seen over the last few years have been extraordinary. And I know that being a minister, and Luke and I have had a conversation about this several times. The elders have had this same conversation. Uh, Till this day, we still don't know the extent to which staying at home for that whole year has had on people's emotions and psyche. psyche. I, I can't tell you how many people over the last few years have talked about being depressed, and they had never gone through depression before, but But being away from people, being unconnected with people, being able to come to church has had a very negative impact on a lot of folks. And I say that to say because it's very easy if we're not careful. When we go through seasons of life like we have over the last few years, it's very easy to feel alone. To feel as though God doesn't care or that God doesn't understand or just where is God in the midst of everything that I'm going through? And it doesn't even have to be world events. There are several of you just in the last three months that that I've known, just in the short time that I've been here, who have gone through some personal tragedy, some grief in your own life. So I know it's very, very easy, if we're not careful, to feel as though God's not here. It's very easy for that light, that Christian life inside of us, if we're not careful, for it to begin to grow dim. And I would imagine 2,000 years ago that the light had started to grow pretty dim when they took Jesus' body down from the cross and placed it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, that after that event happened, that all of the disciples forsook him and left. Now, Peter, and if you read John's gospel, John very kind of sideways says that he was there too. But, 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 but in Matthew's gospel, it, it, it tells us, actually, I'm sorry, let me go back. Um, I, I don't have it up on the screen. But if you remember the story of Peter, Peter actually follows Jesus a little further and into the court of the high priest. And it was there where he was questioned. And if you remember, there were three people that came up to Peter and they said, are you the one? You're the guy, right? You're one of the disciples. You were there with him. And three times over and over again, what did Peter say? I don't know him. 
And so in the end, the disciples' whole world had just been turned upside down. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. I mean, here they are. They loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. These were the ones that he had hand-selected. They had left everything. They left their family, their, their friends, their business. They left everything to follow Jesus. And now this? I mean, he'd been crucified on a Roman cross. Now, stop right there for just a moment. That alone is enough to break your heart when you stop long enough to consider what was in their own heart when it happened. Because what was in their own heart? I mean, the prophecies, they had been following Jesus for three and a half years. They had seen, they had gotten inwardly excited because they could see the prophecies were all lining up, that this was the Messiah. I mean, nobody could teach like he taught. Nobody could do miracles like he did. It was clear to the disciples that he was the one that had been prophesied about long ago. He was the one that was going to start a movement against the Romans. He was the one who was going to bring about the day of the Lord. And he was going to set his throne up in Jerusalem. And and just the other day, we were having a conversation about maybe which one of us is going to get positions next to him. But now, the very one that they believed was going to bring justice and righteousness in the world was crucified. He was literally placed on the most shameful, excruciating form of punishment, the most unjust form of punishment imaginable, and they killed him. I tell you, I read the Gospels because I I very quickly want to get to the, the good stuff. But have you ever stopped to think how did those disciples feel that night I would imagine the pain was probably overwhelming I would imagine the the questions were swirling through their minds the disillusionment was was starting to to cloud their thinking so many questions you know what about all the things he said What about the coming of the kingdom? What about all the promises he made? What about the commission that he made to us back in Matthew chapter 10 where he was training us to carry on his ministry? Well, look where his ministry wound up. So what do we do? Where do we go? What do we believe? You know, it's it's interesting in moments like these when when I realize that we're really not that different from those people 2,000 years ago, are we? They were human beings. Human beings' emotions have not changed that much in the last 2,000 years. We still share those same kinds of emotions. And so we today, like them back then, we know what it's like to go through times when we feel hopelessness. Where we feel despair where we begin asking the questions, God, I just don't know where you are. Can you please show me where you are in the chaos of my life? Can you please show me where you are in the chaos that I see in the world around me? Now, you and I know the story that comes next. Amen? 
It's one thing to talk about the despair, but we know that the day is about to dawn. We're going to come to the account of the resurrection. And I want to just read it with you really quick. And then I want us to kind of talk about it just for a few minutes. But, but here's the, the wonderful story. It says, after the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has arisen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Now I've told you. Incredible story. But it's a big idea, isn't it? Because I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to think about what the Scriptures are trying to get you to believe. It's trying to tell you that 2,000 years ago there was a man, a human being, who lived, who ate with us, who lived just like you and I would, and, and the Bible says that he dies, that he was crucified. So I want you to understand, he really died. Don't you think the Romans made sure that before he went in that tomb, he was dead, amen? I mean, that's what the Roman centurion did with the spear. They made sure that this man was dead. What the Bible is trying to get you to believe is that three days later, his body reanimated. His heart started to beat again. His breathing, he had the breath of life enter into his body once again. That is a really big claim, isn't it? I mean, out of the the five biggest world religions that make up 95% of the faith of the world, you've got Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. If you take out Christianity and Judaism because we worship the same God and you, and you look at the other three for just a moment, let me just show you, just to, just to make sure we're on the same page. When you consider Muhammad, who was the, the founder of Islam, where is he buried today? Well, he's buried right here. It's at the Mosque of the Prophet in the city of Medina in Saudi Arabia. If you want to, you can get a plane ticket. You can fly right there and you can visit the tomb of the Prophet Muhammad. He's still there. When when we talk about uh, Hinduism for just a moment, now Hinduism is different. Hinduism, Hindus, they don't have any founders in that religion. Uh, It's kind of an amalgamation, a culmination of many cultures and and many teachings and pagan religions that have blended over the years. The, The point that I'm trying to make here, though, is that there's no resurrection. There's no tomb. And by the way, there's millions and millions of gods that are worshipped in the religion. There's just a few of some of the main ones right there. Now, Buddha, Buddhism is a little bit different too. Uh, Gautama Buddha was the founder of Buddhism. And his body was cremated at Kushinagar, India. And from there, a lot of people took pieces of his body, pieces of the remains, they made relics out of them, and they literally sent them to the four corners of the earth. 
So there's really not one place where you can go and visit the remains of Buddha. There's, there's places all over the world. Uh, there's a place right here up on the, up on the left. That's the uh, Ramabar Stupa in Kushinagar. It was built over a portion of Buddha's remains when he was cremated. He was cremated on that spot right there. Over here to the right, you've got the Temple of the Tooth of Dalada, Maligawa in Sri Lanka. It's the place where they found one tooth of Buddha. One tooth. And they built an entire shrine over it right there where you can go worship at the tooth of Buddha. And then down below, uh, this is actually rather interesting. I didn't know this, but in 2017, the Chinese excavated a very old site. And this is another temple shrine of Gautama Buddha. And they found more remains. They found one of those many jars that they had sent all over the world. And that's a place where you can go. Now, what are we trying to say here? My point is Buddha taught many things. But his body is still here. Are you following where I'm going with all of this? His body is still here. So what are we saying? What we're saying here is, out of all the religions of the world, one of the things that makes Christianity so different and so unique, one of the main things is that its founder, Jesus, was a man. And watch this. Not only was he a man, but he also proclaimed to be God. Now, if you're a man and you're going to claim to be God, you better have something to back that up, <laughs> right? So not only is he a man that proclaims to be God, but he, and not only did he preach and teach incredible words, life-giving words, he backed it all up mm, by the resurrection of the dead. Now, if there's no resurrection of the dead, there's no difference between Jesus and the rest of those folks that I just put up there, Amen. None whatsoever. Now, like we said earlier, the claim about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's a huge claim to make. So here's the next question that we have to ask. And I'm not afraid to ask it. How do you know it's true? Because the Holy Spirit said, you know, end of sermon, Augustine. We go home now. How do we know it's true? How do we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened? Now, this gets into a field of study in Christianity known as Christian apologetics. And it was a subject that I loved in my early years as a believer. I used to study it all the time. But there's a lot of really good books out there that talk about all the different good evidences of the historicity of Jesus and also the, the evidences for the resurrection. Uh, one book that's been on my heart all week is this one right here. And what just happened? Okay, I don't know. I'm back now. Wow. One book that I've had in my heart all week is this one right here. And this book was written by none other than one of our elders, uh, David Miller. This is a book called Christianity, the, the Most Unique Religion. And uh, David, David and them, they're not here this morning, are they? I really wanted to thank David for this. If you have not gotten a copy of David's book, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Because David, in his book, he points out... 14 specific things. And David admits that these are just things that he's discovered over the span of his life as he studied this. There's probably many, many more. But in his book, he points out 14 specific things that are unique to Christianity that no other religion has. And probably one of the greatest pieces of wisdom that David shares in his book 
uh, and, and David doesn't mind, he told me I could share this, is that Jesus is the only man in human history, certainly the only religious founder in human history, that not only claimed to be God, but who was also raised from the dead, watch this, with hundreds of claims of people that actually saw it that happened in the same generation that the event supposedly occurred. Does that make sense? In other words, it's so unique in history. You can find stories of people talking about resurrections that happened, but it was many, many decades after the fact. They're just stories. What's unique about Christianity is that we know of hundreds of stories of people who had eyewitness accounts of the risen Savior and they were willing to die for Him. That is unique. That is very, very different. And if you think about it, that's exactly the argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. He was correcting, correcting a false teaching that was happening in Corinth, and there was a teaching that had kind of spread around the church that there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. And so Paul comes along, and he says this in verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, it fulfills prophecy, right? That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, again according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 people of the brothers and sisters. Did you notice the last part? At the same time. Now, how are you going to discount that, right? At the same time. Most of whom, Paul says, are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one who was abnormally born. born. The point that I think that Paul is trying to make here is very clear. Paul says, if you want proof of the resurrection, just ask me for references. I'll give them to you. You know, uh, uh, there's a lot of them. Paul says, you don't have to take my word for it. There's a lot of people out there still living who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Those are eyewitnesses. You can go and talk to those people today. Peter, the 12, more than 500 people at one time, James. I mean, there's all kinds of people that have eyewitness stories that will talk to you. Now, David continues in his book. And uh, he just starts listing off some of these people that were eyewitness accounts. He said, he said, for example, you could go and talk to Joseph of Arimathea. If you just take a trip to Jerusalem, you could talk to a lot of people. He says, you could speak to Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. He says, when you get there... Um, you know, he lives in Jerusalem. He can take you right to the tomb. He can take you right to it. And by the way, that tomb had been sealed by Roman guards. There was a seal that was on that tomb. So while you're in Jerusalem, swing by the Praetorian guard and ask them. Now, they're going to lie to you because the story was is that they went and somebody stole the bodies out by night. That's a kind of a sad story for a soldier. But if you kept probing around, you might actually hear the real story. And by the way, you could swing by the tomb and you could see where the seal was on the tomb. You can verify all these things. According to Luke chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, you also can go and talk to Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. And all those women who follow Jesus, they'll tell you. You could also speak to the two men who were on their way to Emmaus. Uh, one of them whose name was Cleopas. They'll tell you they saw Jesus appear to them as they were walking along the way. 
So one of the greatest proofs that you have of the resurrection, folks, is that in the first century, in those first few decades after the death of Jesus, there are hundreds of people who saw him. Who saw him. And you could verify it. And many people did, by the way. Uh, Luke is, uh, Luke writes the Gospel of Luke in your Bibles. He also writes the book of Acts. And if you remember in the beginning of both, he's writing to a financier called um, uh, Theophilus. And he's writing to him saying that, that basically I am, I am going to talk to all these people. I'm going to the eyewitnesses. I'm speaking to the people who walk through these things. And I'm trying to pull it all together to give you a, chronolog- a chronology of the life of Jesus. That's exactly what Luke the doctor is doing. He's speaking to the eyewitnesses. So that's one proof. The numerous eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But those are just stories. Those are just stories. You want to know what makes those stories so compelling? Three weeks ago, Luke and I were having a conversation about today's service. And Luke said, you don't want to know the one thing that I hold on to? He said, the resurrection. And the reason why I hold on to the resurrection is because not only were there hundreds of people who were willing to vouch for the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, who were willing to tell you, yes, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. Luke said, it's because they were willing to die for it. It's a great point. They were willing to die for these stories. They were willing to die defending their claim that Jesus was who he says he was and that three days later he rose from the dead. See, that's a point that I think a lot of people don't realize. And and Luke, you, you really inspired me with that conversation a few weeks ago because it's so true. What makes the story of the resurrection so compelling to believe is that it's one thing to lie about something. Any one of us can tell a lie. But it's another thing to tell a lie and then be willing to go to your grave telling that lie and be willing to defend it even with your own death. Are you willing to do that? Most people won't. You're not going to die for a lie, but you will absolutely die for the truth. So here you have literally hundreds of eyewitnesses that you can talk to who wind up later being persecuted for those beliefs, for spreading those beliefs, for telling those beliefs to other people. If it was a lie that was so uncomfortable, let me ask you a question. In the first century, do you know what they would, the Jews, when the Jews started persecuting the Christians? Because the Jewish persecution came first. The Roman persecution came later. The first Christians were Jews. You know what they started doing? They started kicking you out of the synagogues. They started kicking you out of the trade organizations. The families would turn their backs on you. The families would literally not talk to you anymore. Are you literally going to upend your entire life, the lives of your children, your financial livelihood, and and be banished and, and considered an outcast for a lie? I don't think so. I don't think so. Lee Strobel... And by the way, I put this up here. I didn't have a chance to, to talk about it. But this is just some of the disciples and showing you how they died. Every single one of them except John died as a martyr. Again, why would you do that to, to stand, stand for a lie? Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, says this about those early followers of Jesus. He says, they were willing to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming this without any payoff from a human point of view. 
They faced a life of hardship. They often went without food and they slept exposed to the elements. They were ridiculed and beaten and imprisoned. And finally, most of them were executed in torturous ways. For what? For good intentions? No. Because they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen the risen Christ alive. That's why they did it. In his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis also talks about the significance and the importance of the resurrection. And I love what he had to say. He says, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anybody from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Because you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him merely being a great moral teacher. He goes on to say at the very end of this quote here, he says, he has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic, he was not a liar, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely that it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. See, this is why today, this is so important for us. Because if the resurrection is true, that changes everything. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we, have found, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have had hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So for me, on this resurrection day, on this day that we call Easter, you know where I get my greatest hope? It's right here. It's in the truth of the resurrection because I can tell you that that in my darkest days, when I'm going through the worst of the worst, and Luke, this is exactly what you said the other day too, that when I'm going through the most difficult times in my life, when I'm going through those times where I just, it just, it just, things don't make sense, right? Where God is not acting in the way that I feel like God should be acting or my circumstances are not where I feel that my circumstances should be. At the end of the day, I know that I know that I know that 2,000 years ago, there was a man who walked this earth and that man claimed to be God and he told me he loved me. 
And he told me that he loved me so much with his, his whole heart that he was willing to die for me. And then he did it. And he backed up everything that he ever said and he willingly laid his own life down on the cross so that we could trade places with him, so that we could give him our sin and punishment that we deserve and so that we could then receive his righteousness and acceptance with God that we don't deserve. We call that grace. But I know that I know that I know the evidence is clear. That man, that man came back from the dead. And so this morning, even at times when I get to be in places in life where life doesn't make sense, I know, I know that's the way it's been for a lot of us, especially the last few years. And collectively, it seems like the whole world is in that place right now. But even these, in these times, I know where I can find my hope. My hope is not found in my circumstances. My hope isn't found in my health. My hope is not in the relationships that I have with other people. My hope is not getting all of my circumstances to line up exactly where I want them so that I can get to that place, wherever that magical place is, where I feel like my life will finally make sense. My hope is found on the absolute rock-solid truth that Jesus is who he says he was. And that he died and rose again. And that man promised me that if I believe in him, If I put my faith and trust in him, then not only was he raised back from the dead, but the promise is I'll be raised from the the dead too. And that's coming from a man who came back. I'm going to believe that guy, aren't you? That's the one that I'm going to put my hope and trust in. A man who rose from the dead told us those things. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. So here's my prayer this morning. And my sermon was uh, really just to accomplish one thing. We could have went off on a whole series on Christian apologetics and proving the historicity of Jesus and all of that. I just want to cut to the chase. 2,000 years ago, there were hundreds of people that said they saw Jesus risen from the dead. That's unique to history. That happens nowhere else in history. And 2,000 years ago, the devil very much was very concerned about that story not getting out. And so he brought persecution from the Jews and later the Romans. In fact, by the time you get to the end of the first century, the Roman emperor outlawed Christianity under the penalty of death. And do you know that it was under the reign of Domitian that Christianity literally spread to the entire Roman world? You want to know, do you want to know eventually what took down the Roman Empire? It was not a foreign invader. It was the ideas of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the story of the resurrection. And that is an anchor for your soul. And so this morning as you came in, if you were having emotions, if you felt like you were being tossed to and fro, I pray that just these reminders about the resurrection will help ground you as you go back out. The resurrection means a lot to all of us. And uh, we have a little video, I believe, up here that'll show you what the